You know, I have a lot of favorite verses. There's been certain things that I've read throughout Scripture that in certain points of my life, they taught me something very specific or spoke to me directly to which I could say, man, that really is one of my favorite verses. This morning, um, I'm blessed to be able to speak to you about one of my favorite verses because it shows us a, a picture of Jesus that sometimes is not as well received in the world. Um, sometimes the world likes to paint a picture of Jesus that says, you know, I love everyone no matter what. A picture of Jesus that sometimes can be passive. Sometimes a picture of Jesus that is very quiet. But we're not going to see, going to see that today. We're going to see a different picture of Jesus. We're coming to a part in the text where Jesus has made the statement that his time has come. Jesus is going to be arrested he is about to be put on trial, and ultimately this is heading to the cross. I thought about uh, several guys this week, and I thought about some guys who were on the run. Uh, guys who, in their attempts to run and hide and escape being arrested, fled to a certain place, a very specific place. Uh, and it's very interesting how powerful these men are and how some of them had great influence um, in their day. But when things seem to be going sour, when things seem to be going against how they think they should be going, they run and hide. Uh, a few of those guys are, first of all, Jesse James, Butch Cassidy, the Wild Bunch, the Logan Brothers. And this is a place called the Hole in the Wall. This is a place in Wyoming that you can go and, and see for yourself. This is a place where during the late 1800s and early 1900s, outlaws would have ran to this place, would have hid in this place, because it's almost like a fortified city. There's one way in, there's one way out, and really you could uh, be at defense of your life very easily. It gave you an upper advantage. And this is where a lot of outlaws, such as Jesse James, such, such as Butch Cassidy, would have run and hid during these days. Another one is the famous Hatfields and McCoys. Two families living on the border of Kentucky and West Virginia state lines. These two families feuded with one another. They didn't like one another. Um, many times they would run to a place, and this is actually a place that the Hatfields would go and take rescue, uh, just to, um, to hide from the McCoys. They knew that their life was in danger. They knew that if they did not go to a place where they could defend themselves, that they would be taken out. And it's pretty fascinating that tourists from all around the world, all, absolutely across the United States, will go to this area and will see how they lived. And they'll reenact stuff, and it's just a big mess over there, right? So the biggest one probably in my life would have been that of Saddam Hussein. In 2003, after the fall of Baghdad, a lot of people wondered where the most wanted man on the USA's most wanted list had escaped to. The city had been taken, his fortress, his, his uh, mansion had been taken, but he was nowhere to be found. Uh, about eight months after the fall of Baghdad, they found Saddam hiding in a hole. And that's pictured up above. And it was right outside, it was on a farm right outside the city where he grew up as a kid. A lot of people uh, think that the farmer actually turned him in for a handsome ransom. So, uh, but all of these men, and I had a big list of them. I could have gone all day with 
talking about people who had hid, people who were running, um, hiding from something, protecting their life, worried about their lives, not knowing what the next day would hold, knowing that their life was hanging in the balance. And as we start this morning, as we read the scripture this morning, I want you to understand that that is absolutely not what Jesus was doing in this moment. Jesus was not running. Jesus was not hiding. Uh, As a matter of fact, we're going to see quite the opposite, that Jesus was going to a place that was common. He was going to a place that everyone knew he hung out there so that it gave him his best uh, opportunity to be caught. Over and over, Jesus says throughout the Gospel of John, That his time hadn't come. His time had not come. But now we're going to see that his time has come to accomplish what he was sent to earth to do. And that leads us to our big idea. Jesus was in absolute control of his arrest in the garden. Jesus was in absolute control. As a reminder where we've been, we know that Jesus had washed the disciples' feet. Um, Before the Passover, we see that Jesus had taught them Uh, Some things gave them some very specific instruction. He instituted the Lord's Supper. He would have had, they would have uh, celebrated the Passover together. We see that Jesus will pray the high priestly prayer. And then in chapter 14, we see Jesus say, rise and let's go. This is a map that would have been uh, likely where they would have walked to get to the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, But there is one part in John that is missing. And I want to hit... Uh, I want to touch slightly on that this morning. I don't want us to skip over something that's missing from the other Gospels. One thing that is not mentioned here in the book of John is the suffering of Christ. There's a gap between verses 1 and verses 2 of a little something that takes place. And Kent Hughes says it like this. Christ's agony demonstrates that he knew exactly what was involved. It was not the pain that caused the horror. It was not the shame... It was not the imminent desertion of the disciples. It was the fact that he was going to pay the penalty for our sins. The understanding of what that sacrifice meant, which only omniscience could bring, caused the Lord to break out into a bloody sweat. Which led me to ask, okay, why? Why would John, when all all the other gospels specifically put in the suffering of Christ, why would John choose to leave it out? John does things a little differently in his gospel than a lot of the other guys. It's like the Christmas story. If you read the book of John in the beginning, you will not find the Christmas story. You will not see um, John start with the Christmas story. What he does is he starts all the way back Uh, In Genesis, he wants to connect us not to the birth of Christ, but he wants to take us all the way back to Genesis. When it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he immediately wants to take us back to the creation story. That's what he does in his gospel. There's no angels, there's no manger scene, there's no wise men, there's no shepherds. All those things are left out. Because John wants to take you all the way back to the beginning, not just to the birth of Jesus. Also here in this moment, I think John is trying to show us something very specific. John is trying to show us something special in this moment. And I love how the Gospels 
They don't contradict one another. Just because this gospel leaves this part out and this one adds it in, that's not a contradiction. They're complementing one another and they're making a, a better, bigger picture of the whole story. What John is doing here in this moment is he's trying to connect you to the garden. He says, when they got up, they went to the garden. Now, this word garden that John uses here is a different word than the garden of Gethsemane. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will not see them use the word garden. You will see them use the word Gethsemane. But John chooses to use the word garden. Because John is just like he did with the Christmas story and leaving it out and adding in the beginning was the word. He's trying to connect you back with the Garden of Eden. He's trying to connect you back with the creation story. Just like he did with the Christmas story. You have a little chart on your notes. And these are some things. I'm going to read something from A.W. Pink because he says it much uh, with much more elegance than I could. So I'm going to read it and you can follow along on that chart. It says, The entrance of Christ into the garden at once reminds us of Eden. The contrast between them are indeed most striking. In Eden, all was delightful. In Gethsemane, all was terrible. In Eden, Adam and Eve parlayed with Satan. In Gethsemane, the last Adam sought the face of the Father. In Eden, Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, the Savior suffered for sin. In Eden, Adam fell. In Gethsemane, the Redeemer conquered. The conflict in Eden took place by day. The conflict in Gethsemane was waged by night. In the one, Adam fell before Satan. In the other, the soldiers fell before Christ. In Eden, Adam took the fruit of Eve's hand. In Gethsemane, Christ received the cup of the Father's hand. In Eden, Adam hid himself. In Gethsemane, Christ boldly presented himself. In Eden, the sword was drawn. In Gethsemane, the sword was sheathed. So many parallels. John is trying to connect us back to the garden. And I know the thing is, we could stop right here. And you're like, wow, that's, that's pretty crazy. I would have never gotten that from just reading the text like that. But there's so much more, so let's keep going on. Your first point, Jesus goes to a familiar place. Let's read verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. When we think of the brook Kidron, you might think of a flowing stream, a body of water, that separated the city of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. Um, In reality, this time of the year, it would have been a dried up waterbed. To cross it would have been very easy. Uh, So why did Jesus go to the garden? Uh, We mentioned a few reasons why uh, just now. But one of the reasons why is because pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover were required to spend the night within the vicinity so close to Jerusalem And this garden would have been in that vicinity. Also, as we see in uh, chapter 13, verse 27, says that Judas, after taking the bread that Jesus had given to him, Satan entered into Judas. And Jesus is going to tell Judas, you need to go and do what, um, what, whatever you're going to do, do quickly. Jesus knows Judas is going to betray him. He, they did the, the, cup, they dipped the morsel into the cup, gave it to Judas. And so Judas is set to betray Jesus. 
And then we see that Jesus is going to go to the place that Judas would have known. If Jesus wanted to trick Judas, he would have picked a different spot. They could have gone anywhere else. But this is something, let's look in verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with the disciples. You know these outlaws that we mentioned earlier. They didn't go to a place that was common. They didn't go to a place that they always went. They didn't go to a hangout that they were always found at. They went somewhere new. They went somewhere that they would not get caught. Jesus here, by going to the garden, is taking the initiative to get caught. He's doing exactly what he needs to get caught. This also reminds us from early in John chapter 10, where John says this, No one takes uh, my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father. So Jesus is making choices. Here in this moment, he's showing courage, he's showing resolve, all to obey the Father, all to do the will of the Father. He goes to the place that Judas knows. He goes to the place that he will be caught. Secondly, Jesus approaches the crowd with confidence. Let's continue reading in verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers of the chief priests and of the Pharisees, went there with lanterns. And torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed them, was standing with them. Don't miss this massive group that Judas has assembled to arrest Jesus. John calls it a band of soldiers. This gives us a little bit of an idea of how many people would have been with him. Uh, I know that when I've seen this in movies or when I've seen this acted out in a play, there's usually 20 or 40 soldiers that are coming to arrest Jesus. Um, It's also in parts of scripture called a cohort, the group that was going to arrest Jesus. And a cohort would have been a tenth of a legion. And a legion of soldiers could have been anywhere from three to 6,000 soldiers. So a tenth of a legion, a cohort, would have been three to six hundred Roman soldiers um, that would have accompanied also the soldiers of the high priest, of the chief priest and the Pharisees. This would have been a massive group coming. They would have seen them leave Jerusalem. They would have seen, seen them coming through the brook of Kidron. And then they would have seen them entering the garden. Lanterns, torches, they would have seen them coming. Yet Jesus steps forward and Jesus is going to ask them. You know, if you think this number sounds crazy, if you think it's kind of, was there really that many men going to arrest Jesus? I want you to remember in Acts 23, when the centurion wants to uh, transport um, Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea, he gets a a group of 470 men to just escort Paul alone. So this was not uncommon to send a large group of soldiers to escort someone somewhere. So why? Why such a large group of men to arrest Jesus? Why would they send an entire cohort of soldiers to get Jesus? Because Jesus has proved very difficult for them to arrest. He's, been, he's proven very difficult for them to get their hands on. John chapter 2 
He caused a huge uproar in the temple. John chapter 6. He did some questionable things in the, in the time of the Passover. John chapter 7. They actually send some guys to arrest Jesus, but then they give up. They come back and they say, you know what? This guy speaks differently than other guys. He, he speaks with authority. No one's ever talked like him before. So they give up. John chapter 8. They try to kill him. They try to stone him. He slips away. John chapter 10. They go to arrest him again. He escapes again. Why? Because his time had not yet come. And yet here comes this large group of men. He's proven very difficult to arrest. Jesus is going to step forward. Jesus has said publicly, John chapter 12 verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, on this side of the cross, when we hear this, it's time for the Son of Man to be glorified, we think of the cross. We think of Jesus dying in our place for our sins. That's what we think of. That's what we, we connect those dots. This is not what believers, I mean, this is not what people in biblical days would have thought of. They would have thought about a king from David's line coming again. They would have thought about a conquering Messiah. And Jesus, when Jesus makes the claim, my time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, that's what they're thinking. This guy is saying the Messiah is about to show up. The conquering Messiah, a new king from David's line. And then just a few verses later, from John 23, I mean 12, 23, down to verse 31, he makes the comment that the ruler of this world is going to be cast out. Now, again, on this side of the cross, we hear that and we think he's talking about conquering death, conquering sin, and doing away with Satan's power in this world. That's what we think of. That's not what they would have thought of. They would have instantly gone to, he's about to get rid of the Roman power over us. These guys are oppressive over us. This, they've heard the prophets talk about a new exodus that was to come. And all of a sudden, this guy's saying he's the Messiah. He's saying it's time for him to be glorified. He's saying the ruler of this world is going to be cast out. They're ready for him to come and to take over. Something is about to happen. They can't trap him. They can't defeat him. It's the Passover time. They would have thought, they would have connected these dots back to Exodus. Are all of these things happening for a reason? What is going to happen? They expect trouble. They think possibly an attempt to overthrow everything that they know. Little do they know, ironically, this is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's just not going to do it in the manner in which they think that he's going to do it. He's not going to do it by taking up arms. He's going to do it by laying down his life, by his willing surrender. So imagine the scene, this huge force coming up into the garden with torches, weapons. It's not time. They're coming to arrest Jesus. Then look again at verse 4. Knowing all that was going to happen to him, he steps forward. And Jesus is going to use a phrase here that he's repeated many times throughout the book of John. And it's the phrase, I am. Uh, would have been a phrase, ego a me, that would have been used uh, back in Exodus. But it's also, he's used it right here in the book of John. John chapter 6. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He says in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Same phrase. John chapter 10, I am the door. John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. John chapter 11, I am the resurrection. 
John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, I am the true vine. Seven statements that Jesus has made throughout the book of John connecting this word to this moment. But it's also connecting us back to Exodus chapter 3 when Moses meets God in the burning bush. And when Moses says, who should I tell the Egyptians when they ask me who sent me? And he says, ego me. Tell them I am has sent you. Tell them I am, I am. The name of God. You know, you and I were created. Uh, we have a beginning. And when God is saying, tell them I am. When Jesus makes the comment, I am. He is saying, I have been. I always have been. I am and I always will be. He's saying, I am. He's connecting this name back to God, saying this was the very name of God. And he's saying in this phrase, he's staking his claim at being God. I and the Father are one. I am. Now it gets good. Here we go. Next point. Jesus shows everyone that he is in charge. Verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Jesus in this moment is going to assert himself, assert his identity. He's going to show everyone in the darkness of the garden who he really is. So he says, I am. I am in control of this situation. I am in control of my arrest. Not this Roman military might, not the temple guards. As Jesus will also remind us in the next chapter, when Pilate puts him on trial, he's going to say, listen... The only power that you have over me is the power that the Father has given to you. I am in charge. All of these things are happening for a reason. You know, I've had the privilege of teaching a little bit through Daniel, teaching a little bit through Esther in in the past couple of years. And you see kings like King Nebuchadnezzar, King Ahasuerus, and you see these men when people will fall down before them because of just fear and reverence of who they are in their position. I do actually think that that's a little bit of what's happening here. But when he utters the phrase, I am, the majestic words of God, connecting himself to God Almighty, they cannot help but to step back and fall to the ground. Alexander McLaren says it like, he makes the comment that in the Gospel of John, about the Gospel of John, he says, these guys didn't just merely pause. These guys didn't merely just step back. They actually fell to the ground because of the phrase, I am. Jesus was asserting himself as God. He was connecting himself with the Father, and no one could do anything but fall before him. You know, I love this picture of Jesus. I love that he's not using this moment to escape. He's not using this moment uh, to flee. He's using this moment to show everyone, I am God. And he's also doing it to show everyone that this is why I was sent here. This is what has to take place. I'm still in control. And that leads us to our next point. He protects his disciples. Verse 7. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Jesus has gained the advantage. He doesn't attack. He doesn't flee. With his enemies on the ground, he asked the question again. 
Whom do you seek? I think it was their plan all along to arrest all the disciples with Jesus. It was their plan all along because in the other gospels you will see that when the disciples scatter, they try to grab them. Some of them have to escape without their clothes. They wanted to arrest these guys, but Jesus in this moment is going to make sure that that doesn't happen. He's taking the attention off of them, putting the attention on himself. He asked them twice, who is it that you seek? John 17, 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. He's also fulfilling scripture in this moment with the disciples getting away, with the disciples going to. He's taking the focus off of them, putting the focus on himself. I am the guy you're looking for. Let these men go. You know, I'm thinking if you just experienced the whole falling on your face thing that you might listen to what he has to say. So um, this leads us to our next point. Jesus displays mercy even while being arrested. Verse 10. Let's get to old Simon Peter. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Apparently, Judas betraying Jesus was too much. Peter had had enough. He wasn't going to take it anymore. So he takes a lunge at the high priest's servant. And he probably hits him on the helmet. Coming down the side of his helmet, it lops off his ear. Uh, A few things I want you to get from this point of the scripture. I don't want us to miss this. Uh, One lesson is the folly that Peter will display. He's reacting out of the flesh. He's reacting in the moment without first considering what God's plan was, without first considering the purpose in that moment. Jesus has been very specific up till now of what has to happen. He's told his disciples that I have to die. Peter isn't having it. He's not listening. You know, sometimes in Scripture when I read moments like this, because I'm also a guy who sometimes reacts when I should think and listen, uh, I like to give Peter a little props. I like to say, man, good for Peter. At least he's fighting back. Um, But think about the folly. Hundreds and hundreds of Roman soldiers, as well as other soldiers, are there to arrest you with clubs, with weapons. It's only going to end bad, a fight. You're completely outnumbered. And Jesus in this moment is going to rebuke Peter. Put your sword up. He was courageous, yes, but I also think he was very foolish in this moment. Because if you keep reading, we're going to see that Peter very soon also doesn't have the courage to even acknowledge that he knows Jesus. Yeah, he's willing to fight for him in this chapter, but in the next chapter we're going to see where he's not even willing to acknowledge that he exists. Peter failed in this moment. Let us let that be a teachable moment to us that we can fail also if we're not grounded in God's word to let it guide and direct us in our life. We too can react in the flesh and it usually leads us down a path where we're being rebuked by Jesus as well. One more thing about this verse um, that I thought was interesting is that the high priest's servants is named Malchus. Why would they name this guy? Um, One argument that some of the scholars seem to think was maybe the disciples knew him. Maybe they knew him. Maybe uh, this was someone that they may have trusted at some point. 
and now he's there to arrest Jesus and they are going to take it personal. Uh, the, the idea that I like the best is that one of the guys said that imagine Jesus, uh, John telling this story after the fact. Okay, We've gone to the cross. We've heard about the resurrected Christ. He's ascended into heaven. You have this gospel for people to read. And all of a sudden people are reading along. Well, they said this happened, this happened, this happened. And Malchus, he had his ear chopped off. Says it was healed in this moment. Well, we know Malchus. We we we've heard of Malchus. He lives over there, off of University Boulevard. Let's go check him out. And so they can go find Malchus. And in a world of fact checking, to find out if it's really true, this would have invited people to go and find Malchus. Did that really happen? Did that guy chop your ear off? And they could actually go over there. Yep, your ear's still connected. I see the scar. This allowed people to go and to find Malchus and to see if this was a true story or not. I like that idea because it allows people to go and fact check for themselves to see if this story is true. But lastly, and most importantly, Jesus stays on mission. At the end of verse 11, it says, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? This isn't about saving the disciples in this moment. It's not about saving the disciples from this army. It's about saving the disciples for eternity. It's about saving us for eternity. This has been the plan the entire time. The last verse, Jesus speaks, the cup that the Father has given me. This is one of two cups spoken of in the Bible. The first is the cup of salvation. We see in Psalm 116, 13, it says, I will lift up the cup of salvation and I will call on the name of the Lord. So the cup of salvation. That's not the cup that's mentioned here. The cup that's mentioned here is the cup of wrath. Jesus in Matthew 26 will actually pray when he's, this, when he's suffering in the garden, he will, he will pray that this cup would pass from him. But then he ends by saying, but not my will, but the Father's will be done. The truth is, each and every one of us sitting in this room today and each one hearing this, we will all drink of one of these two cups someday. You will either drink the cup of salvation or you will drink the cup of wrath. For those who believe in Jesus, Jesus here in the garden, headed to the cross, he has taken the cup of the wrath that was poured out for you. He's taking it from you and he's partook of it. He took it in your place for your sins. The wrath that was poured out for your sins, it was poured out upon the Son. And Jesus takes it and he's going to drink it for us. He takes our cup of wrath and he gives us a cup of salvation. You know, one other truth that I want us to connect here with this story is that in the same way that the soldiers fell before Jesus, in the same way every single one of us one day will bow our knees and will say that Jesus is Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So we have a choice. If you've not accepted Jesus as your Savior, there is a cup of wrath that is being poured out for you. And if you die without knowing Jesus, you will have to suffer God's wrath for all eternity. But Jesus makes a way. Jesus has made a way. We have assurance on this side of the cross that Jesus, in this moment, being totally in 
in charge of his arrest. He will be totally in charge of his death. And three days later, we're going to see that he was in complete authority over his resurrection. So Jesus is headed to the cross. He's headed to the cross for you and for me to make a way to have a relationship with the Father. So the question is, do you have that relationship? Do you know Jesus as your Lord and your Savior? Uh, I hope we see the truth in God's Word, and I hope we will choose to, to follow after Him today.